Well, turn in your Bibles to Luke's Gospel and that to chapter 6. Luke chapter 6, verse 20. Luke chapter 6, verse 20. As we return to the Beatitudes, here is now God's Word. And He lifted up His eyes on His disciples and said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven. For so their fathers did to the prophets. But woe to you who are rich. For you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the prophets. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, as we make our ascent yet again to the mount, speak to us, we pray. And by your Holy Spirit, make known to us what we know not. Cause us to do what we live not. Create that which in and of ourselves we cannot. And give us the grace as we look to your word to see ourselves for who we are and Christ for the Savior and Redeemer that he is. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. It is often the case throughout Scripture that the Lord spoke to his people from the mountain. And maybe the most prominent of all mountains was the one situated in a desert called Sinai where the Lord spoke to His people through His servant Moses. And it was there that He gave them His law. A law that made them distinct. A law that separated the people of Israel from their neighbors. Ultimately, a law that revealed something of their God and their Maker. That He was holy. And that therefore they too were to be holy. And so the holy people of Israel were to do things that were unconventional and vastly different from those around them. For example, they weren't allowed to eat certain foods. They were prohibited from consuming any sea life without fins or scales, which meant they couldn't eat a bowl of clam chowder or shrimp tacos or a lobster roll. And I could go on and on. And while they were allowed to eat animals that were both cloven and foot and that chewed the cud, they weren't allowed to eat animals that were either or. And so they had to cross off pork ribs off the list and hot dogs off the list. No Saturday night hot dog party. These dietary laws were to help keep them from fellowshipping with idol worshipers around the dinner table. There were also certain kinds of clothing that they couldn't wear, such as garment made with two different kinds of material. So there was no such thing as 65% cotton, 35% polyester, dry fit t-shirts. No, that was a big no-no for them. But not only food and clothes. God gave them ritual laws like that of circumcision, that the nations around them, that they didn't practice. When David was but a shepherd boy, he, he slayed the giant Goliath, but not before he called him an uncircumcised Philistine. Now, that's just a few examples of how God's people were to be distinct. Well, notice that God comes to speak to His people yet again upon a mountain. Not on Mount Sinai, 
but on a mountain in the area of Galilee. Not in a thick cloud and smoke to Moses, but in the very person of the Son of God. As fire descended upon the mountain in Exodus, it was Jesus who descended upon the mountain with His disciples here in Luke. And coming to a level place, He he spoke to His people. Well, how are they going to be different from the world? How are they going to be separate and distinct from the unbelieving that was around them? Not so much through what they ate or what they wore or even a mark on their bodies, but rather through the condition of their hearts. Not an external ceremony, but rather through internal poverty. How are Jesus' disciples to be set apart? What was taking place within them that wasn't taking place in anyone else? And the answer is a deep spiritual poverty. And as a result, a a growing spiritual hunger for righteousness as we saw last week. We as Christians are those who have been emptied of ourselves and filled with Christ. That's what sets us apart from the world. For us who are poor, Christ is our treasure. For us who are hungry, Christ is our heavenly bread. And while Moses told the people of Israel there the stipulations of the covenant, remember, blessings for obedience and cursings for disobedience. Notice that Christ tells us that we as Christians, we are already blessed. This is one of the first things that Jesus wanted us to know. Not how we can be blessed, but rather that we are blessed. Well, why? It's not because we have fulfilled the Sermon on the Mount. Left to ourselves, we are unable to meet any of its demands. But He who delivered the Sermon, He walked the Sermon Himself. He practiced what He preached to holy perfection on our behalf. Therefore, we apply that Sermon because Christ lived that Sermon. We are holy because Christ has made us holy. It is the outflow of who we already are. This is the beauty of the sermon. It describes who we are as those who belong to Christ. Well, we return again to the mountain and to sit at His feet to hear Christ speak to us. And Luke here provides for us two more Beatitudes for our consideration. Following the blessing of poverty and hunger, he says this, Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. If we understood the first two Beatitudes, this third one doesn't come to us as a surprise. It's because Jesus speaks yet again of a condition that no natural person would ever covet in his life. It is, as you might say, this is the saddest condition. Who desires heartbreak? Who wants to have their soul in agony and pain? I mean, people don't rush towards wanting to have this experience. No one is fighting to be first in line to say, pick me. I want to weep in misery. Rather, we find that it's the tendency of the human heart to want the opposite. To avoid heartbreak at all costs. To flee from any sense of emotional pain. Well, what's the maxim? Let us eat, drink, and be Mary, for tomorrow we die. This is the philosophy of the world. And one that we ourselves have very much adopted into our own lives. This is innate in us. To search for happiness. 
to seek out any pleasure, to do all that we enjoy. Now I need to be clear here. And that God does not denounce the enjoyment of things in its proper context. It was the wise King Solomon who advised in Ecclesiastes 8.15 that joy is to be commended for man has no good thing under the sun, but to eat and drink and be joyful for this will go with him in his toil through the days of his life that God has given him under the sun. What was he saying? The wise preacher was saying that life is filled with enough trouble. Things like the loss of a job. Things like severed relationships. Things like a failed exam. Things like sickness and even death. Yet in the midst of all of it, God's people should still rejoice in the pleasures of life and to do so recognizing them as gifts of God. We were made to enjoy the gifts of God and to in turn give Him thanks. And so Jesus here is not saying that you can't do that. Well then, what is He saying? What is the Lord trying to teach us? That there is a weeping that takes place in every single Christian. An ongoing sorrow in his or her life. Matthew refers to it in his account as a mourning. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Now there are two false assumptions that the church has made regarding this beatitude. Two false assumptions. The first is this. That Jesus was saying that every episode of sadness in which we experience in, in life will in time go away. That time heals all wounds. What many have perceived in this beatitude is that as long as we keep striving and keep persevering, our sorrow will eventually turn into laughter. That we will eventually get over those moments in our lives in which we've been heartbroken. Things in which we have grieved greatly over. And if we are to think about the things that grieve us most, I think the most painful experience that we would experience is probably death. The death of our loved one. The loss of someone we love. And you see, the Lord, without a doubt, without a doubt, when He looks upon our sadness, He comes near to us and He comforts us with reminders of His promises, varying means of grace, no doubt. But even such sorrow, beloved, doesn't truly plumb the depths in which the Lord Jesus was speaking. All that to say, there is a much more greater sorrow, a more painful sadness that far exceeds any physical loss. The second false assumption is this. That because of what Jesus said, we ought to have this sort of uh, sad and gloomy disposition uh, in our lives. This stoic and cold demeanor. Many in the church wrongly assume this kind of puritanical manner of life, which is so far from the truth as to how the Puritans truly live. Jesus is not saying to his disciples, blessed is the grim and the cheerless Christian. Charles Spurgeon, the great London Baptist preacher, he said that there appeared to be some preachers to have their neckties tied and twisted around their souls. I understand what he's talking about. People falsely think that that, that piety is measured by some kind of outward seriousness or uptightness. Pastor Eric and I, we entered seminary uh, exactly 20 years ago. 
January 2004, and there was a dress code, slacks, a shirt, and a necktie, which we understood in that it said something about the seriousness of the task in which we were doing, the work that we were doing. But we were literally on campus from, from morning to night. And you can say that our lives were lived within the walls of that seminary. We had to unwind at times. And so we would do things to get our minds off of our studies to have a little bit of fun. And so we would play, and this is what we used to do back in the day, we played hacky sack. People don't play hacky sack anymore. We played hacky sack in our dress shoes and in our neckties. And sometimes other students would join in. They were a little bit hesitant. We said, come on, you can join in. We often laughed and we joked with our professors, sometimes too much. Sometimes we would play hide-and-go-seek in the library, hiding under tables and behind books, and we try to scare each other. And I admit, maybe we went a little bit too far when after eating our Subway sandwiches, we would stuff our trash at the end of those long plastic bags in which they came in, and we would swing them around, and we would battle each other in the hallways of the classrooms. There were times where some students would say, hey, hey, guys, knock it off. Like, oh, okay. But, but, all that to say, there was some chatter. There was some chatter going around campus. Seminary gossip. Rumblings that got back to us that we were the unholy students at the <laughs> seminary. And maybe there was a little bit of immaturity. I was 22 years old. But one of the wrong assumptions that existed in some of the people there, that piety meant having this stern and strict disposition. You see, this blessedness is not the exterior appearance of religiosity. That's the play of religious fundamentalists. It was the mark of the Pharisees. Remember the prayer of the Pharisee? He said, I fast, I mourn two times a week. It had become merely an external duty and one of appearances. The blessedness of weeping is not for those who are outwardly somber or serious. That would be rather a superficial reading of this beatitude. Then what is it? It's a weeping that takes place not so much on the outside, but on the inside. A mourning that occurs within one's spirit and soul. As we saw before in the first two beatitudes, the poverty is in a man's spirit and not in his pocket. The hunger is in a man's soul and not in his stomach. And the same is said of weeping. Blessed are those who weep, not over that which is physical, but spiritual. This mourning, friends, is a mourning over one's sinfulness. What is true of every single Christian believer is we are heartbroken and sorrowful over our sin. For our eyes have been opened by the grace of God to see ourselves for who we truly are. This is what we saw in the first beatitude. That we are impoverished and that we are poor and we are needy. We are spiritually bankrupt and there is nothing in and of ourselves that in any way commend us to God. But you see, rather than being commended to God, we ourselves, apart from Christ, we are condemned before God. Again, not commended, but condemned. It's because being exposed before the holy and sovereign, it's not that we're completely empty. 
Empty of anything good, yes. But there is something that we do find within ourselves. The most terrible and wicked thing under heaven on earth, our sin. And that I am filled with it. Filled with that which is utterly detestable to the living God. And that while there is no good thing in me, the ugliness of sin has pervaded me. And at the end of the day, in the final analysis, I am. I am an evil and vile and wicked and wretched sinner. And so in the reflex of my heart, I weep and I grieve and I mourn. Christian, this is what took place in each and every one of us when God opened up our hearts. This is what we realized and saw in ourselves. And we were smitten with this, with this deep sense of sorrow that we had never before ever experienced in our lives. We felt ourselves ruined. We felt ourselves wrecked, knowing that we were absolutely guilty in all our actions, in all our attitudes. We were found sinful in all of our being. And this made us mourn. It made us weep within our souls. You know, there's a story that takes place in Luke chapter 7, and you can turn there if you want because it's only a chapter over, where Jesus is eating at the house of a Pharisee named Simon. And in those days when meals were eaten in a house, it commonly took place in a courtyard. It was a semi-public setting. And so it wasn't unusual for people along the street to come and say hi. But at this dinner party, an unexpected guest appeared. As Jesus was reclining at the table, a woman came behind Him. Not to touch Him to be healed, but a woman came behind Him and she was weeping. And she was weeping profusely. Well, why was she weeping? Why was she crying? Luke tells us that she was a woman of the city who was a sinner. You can find the story in Luke 7, verse 36. In all probability, she was a prostitute who had sold her body to countless men. And here's one of the dirtiest women in all of society, but she was weeping because she saw herself for who she really was before a holy God, weeping over her sin, mourning over her wretchedness, grieving that she had sinned against her heavenly Father. She was made aware of her foulness and her stink how vile and dreadful she was in her sin. But notice, notice where she was. She was behind Jesus, wiping her tears from His feet with her hair. Well, we might ask, well, why was she there? Why was she there? You see, her sorrow drove her to the only place that she knew, at the feet of her Savior. It says there in Luke chapter 7 that she came when she learned that Jesus was going to be in that house. You see, it was Jesus that she sought in her mourning and in her despair. And this woman who felt the greatest sadness that she could ever know. Hear this now. She, she heard the greatest words a sinner could ever hear. Jesus, after speaking to Simon the Pharisee, she turned to the woman at the end of this story and she said this, your sins are forgiven. Go in peace. You see, this is the paradox. It's the most amazing and gracious 
reversal. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. It's the blessing of repentance. This is what Jesus is speaking of here in this third beatitude. That it is mourning that produces repentance and thus the forgiveness of one's sins. Paul says it like this, for godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation. It's the great contradiction that when I am brought low to the utter depths, I am lifted high up to the heavens. That in my deepest sorrow, I am the most joyful. How could that be? And beloved, do you know of this blessing? How can this be? How can it be that in, that in our deepest despondency, I am never more comforted? It's because if we come to Jesus mourning over our sin, He will give to us the greatest of all comforts. Pardon. Pardon for sin. This is otherworldly. And I say that because the world knows nothing of this. And you see, this is how God operates in His kingdom. It's not upside down, but rather it's right side up. That that when I am most grieved and despairing over my sin, I am most secure and comforted by the Savior. Beloved, why is that? It's because He tells me that He has removed my sins as far as the east is from the west. You see, when this woman found herself convicted of her sin, realizing sin for what it really is, and realizing herself for who she really was, where did she go? She went to Jesus. She went to Christ. And remember what the prophet Isaiah tells us about him? That he was a man of sorrows, and that he was acquainted with grief. The reason why my mourning is turned into joy is because Isaiah 53 tells us that surely He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. And by His stripes we are healed. The reason for this reversal is because on the cross there too was another reversal whereby my sins were laid upon Him who had no sin. Guilty, vile, Helpless we, spotless Lamb of God was He. He was the perfect substitute. The perfect satisfaction for my sin. It was upon the cross that bearing my sin and carrying my sorrows that Jesus suffered, bled, and He died. But He who died was raised from death to life. And you see, unspeakable joy, unspeakable joy is offered in the full forgiveness of our sins In Jesus Christ. When we come to Him in repentance. When we come to Him mourning and grieving over our sins. When we come to Him in true repentance and faith. Trusting in His merit and not our own. Non-Christian. You will never never know the joy of knowing Christ and being forgiven of your sins apart from such sorrow. You see, any and all attempts to find fulfillment, to find happiness, apart from this sorrow, will only result in a never-ending disaster. Jesus tells us in Luke chapter 6, verse 25, 
But woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. You see, the pleasures of this world will only lead to everlasting sadness. A place of torment. And notice this, where there will be weeping, but weeping and a gnashing of teeth. Not weeping and joy, but weeping and judgment. But the man or woman who truly grieves, who truly mourns, will be comforted. Non-Christian, come and see your sins for what they really are. I call you to see yourself for who you really are. Recognizing that you are a great sinner, but that Christ is a great Savior. Now there are a few things that we need to see here about this sorrowful morning. And firstly, it's this, that our emotional response here, it doesn't narrow but it expands. In that while I feel, I feel no deeper sorrow, I come to find no higher joy. Do you, do you get that? Have you experienced that? You see, the sensitivity to God becomes greater, not less. Our spiritual awareness balloons and it broadens. And so our capacity to know Him and worship Him can only grow. In other words, the more deeper I understand the gravity of my sins and thus convicted of it, the more gratitude and joy I will know. And you see, the reason why there's such little joy in our lives, Christian, is largely due to the fact that we have little conviction of our sin. That's why we're so joyless. And we're slugging along in the Christian life. It's because we don't see sin for what it really is. We don't really care too much. You see, our sorrow and our joy are interconnected and interrelated. Which is why Paul could say in 2 Corinthians 6.10 that as servants of God, and hear this, we are as sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. That's what he means there. Christian, can I ask, what has become of your sensitivity to sin in your life? Have you become spiritually numb? Has your Christianity become joyless? And the reason is, there's a deficiency in your doctrine of sin. When is the last time you felt yourself mourning and grieving over your sin? Could it be that you've come to a place in your life where you feel like you don't really need to? That some sins just don't require my repentance? How does a person get to such a point? A person thinks little of sin and they think little of God. This is, this is what happens when there's no longer this vision, this beatific vision, as the Puritans used to say, this beatific vision of God. When that's gone, that's what happens. Because you see, it's only when we come before Him that we feel ourselves exposed. Our souls, as it were, x-rayed and examined. 
You see, when there ceases to be that appointment with God, we naturally become more calloused and we become more hardened. And as sin increases, we do less repenting until our consciences become seared. And the conviction of the Holy Spirit gets more and more faint. And in time, there's no spiritual pulse. There's no spiritual heartbeat. And the question is, Christian, are you somewhere along that scale? And so the greater our mourning, the greater joy we will know. You know, in the story of this sinful woman, do you know what Jesus told Simon the Pharisee? Let's turn to Luke chapter 7. Look with me in verse 41. And here's what Jesus told the Pharisee. A certain money lender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which, which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one I suppose for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves, loves little. You see, it's, it's the same thing that we're speaking of here. That our ability to mourn this morning causes our love to increase. Secondly, we need to know that this mourning will never end for us Christians this side of heaven. You see, for us as Christians, we know our sins have been forgiven. For our Redeemer and our Savior has paid for all of our sins. The power of sin has been broken. Sin has been defeated. We have died to sin through our union with Christ in His death. Therefore, we are no longer slaves to sin. But yet the reality is that sin is sin. It still remains, doesn't it? There's still this residue of sin in our lives. Which means for us, we will continue to grieve over our sin. We will continue to contemplate the wretchedness of our sin and we will say to ourselves, how, how was I capable of such a thing? How could I dishonor Him? How could I deliberately sin and disregard His will? What have I done? Harboring these sinful thoughts, these sinful ideas, these sinful feelings. How could I get angry at this person and react in such a way? How could I disregard that person for whom the Lord died? You see, although we belong to God's kingdom, we still live in this fallen world that is filled with sin. And we're still in it. And we ourselves, we still sin. Which we hate about ourselves. Which we grieve over. And this is why we're filled with sorrow. And the reason why we react to our sin with such displeasure is because we know that Christ has made us new. He's given us this new taste and a new palate for holiness 
and righteousness. And so there is in us this repulsion to sin, an aversion and a sensitivity to sin. And all that because the Holy Spirit now lives, lives inside of us. Which is why Paul can say in the same breath in Romans 7, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? But this is what he says right after in the very same breath. But thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Beloved, when there is no mourning though, when there is no mourning, when there is no grieving, Paul says we grieve the Holy Spirit. We grieve Him who dwells within us. Thirdly, this mourning, it begins with self. It can never begin outside of ourselves, but in ourselves. As I said before, in spiritual examination. Well, where does that take place? It takes place when I look into the mirror of God's holy word. And when I look into the mirror of God's holy word, it shows me my spots. It's when I look into His good and perfect will that I see how short I fall. I find myself guilty of sin. It casts me down and it makes me mourn. But here's the thing. It drives me back to Christ. It drives me back to Christ. And the moment we're driven back to Christ are our peace and our happiness and our comfort is returned. The Christian life then is spent in this way. In perpetual mourning and comfort, sorrow and joy. But our grieving and our mourning doesn't stop at our own sins, but also for the sins of others. Isn't that true? I think many of you have experienced this in people that you love in your life. When we see a brother or a sister whom we love and we see them living in a way that is contrary to God's will, it hurts us. It pains us. We see them backsliding. We see them spiritually regressing. And we see them acting not in faith. And our hearts break. There's a deep sadness that, that overwhelms our souls. It's because we see that what is taking place in them was what used to was, was taking place in us. And this is why the Lord, beloved, this is why the Lord, when He saved us, He did so in a body. Notice that when, when He saved us, He didn't just save us to be on our own individually, but He saved us into a body that we might know that when one, one member hurts, the entire body hurts. This is why the Lord gives us to one another, that we might spur one another towards love and good deeds towards greater faithfulness to Christ. And so church, brother, sister, we can never despise the counsel of our family members in the family of God. We can never despise their rebuke. You see, ultimately, it's for our joy. It's for our comfort. That as a brother or a sister comes to me to show me my sins, they do so that I might mourn and in mourning be again comforted. In weeping, find joy. Never to harm us, but only to help us and to lift us up. Fourthly, and this is the last, we grieve the sins of others, even those who seek to do us harm. 
How do we respond to the sins of those who hate us and persecute us? We mourn their sins as well. Those sins grieve us because it, at the end of the day, dishonors the Lord that we love. I want you to notice what Jesus says to Luke, or Jesus says to his disciples in Luke chapter 6, verse 22. Blessed are you when people hate you, and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man, rejoice in that day and leave for joy. For behold, your reward is great in heaven. For so their fathers did to the prophets. When Jesus delivered this Sermon on the Mount to his disciples, he told them the blessedness of living life in God's kingdom. He said, blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. But I want you to know something that's very important about the kingdom. That it is both now and future. It is both near and it is far. When Jesus preached, He said this, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom belongs to the poor in spirit, to those who hunger for righteousness, to those who mourn for their sins. It is a present reality. We have been brought into the kingdom. But in another sense, the kingdom is still to come. Which is why Jesus taught us to pray, Your kingdom come, Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so how can the kingdom be here, here, and yet lie in the future? The answer is found in the Christian life. You see, the kingdom has come to us in Jesus. Through faith in Him, we, we enter the kingdom. It belongs to us. Yet even though we belong to the kingdom of God, we live in the kingdom of this world. We belong to God's kingdom, and at the same time, we live in another kingdom. That while we've been made new, we live out our new lives in the context of the old. And so we live our lives in a place that is hostile and unreceptive. A world filled with devils and the flesh. And so there's going to be this conflict, right? This is why becoming a Christian is not an easy thing. Life doesn't become less demanding. It doesn't become in a way, it becomes in a way more challenging and difficult. Because you see, for us, we belong to a kingdom that is alien to this world. And if our Lord was tested and tempted and opposed and rejected and eventually crucified by this world, it ought to be of no surprise to us if we incur a little bit of the same. We will always be in conflict. We will never be comfortable here in this world. And it's because we belong somewhere else. This is why what Jesus describes here in the Beatitudes is so vastly opposite to the principles of this world. We are those who have been trans transformed by the grace of God and so transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of His Son. And so as a result, our living will be in contrast to everyone around us. And so even in persecution and oppression 
and harm and shame, whether it be within our families or in our workplaces or even with our college students, even in your schools, we will rejoice. We will rejoice. You see, even though we belong to the kingdom of God, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. And so while the world takes pleasure in the things of this world only to find ruin, you and I, and I close with this, you and I will before the holy and living God live our lives as poor, empty of ourselves. We will live our lives hungry, feasting and filled with Christ. We will live our lives mourning in continual repentance and faith. Let's pray together. Holy God and Father, we thank You for drawing us before the mirror of Your Word to reveal to us much of ourselves, but much more of Christ. That we might be exposed in light of Your holiness. We confess to You our lack of spiritual awareness, our weak to little conviction of the sin that lingers within us. Forgive us, Lord, for taking that which You detest and despise and making it a part of our daily lives. We mourn not as we ought, because we love not the Savior as we should. But Lord, we believe, but help our unbelief. May we grieve and mourn our sins for which the Son of God bled and suffered and died. We confess, wretched people that we are, but thanks be to God for Jesus Christ who bore our griefs, who bore our sorrows. It's in His name we pray. Amen.